going to be in Mark chapter 11, uh, verses 20 through 25. I made an error on your insert and left the numbers from last week at the top, verse numbers wise. So it still probably says 12 through 19, which is the front end of this. Uh, and so just you can cross it out, write 20 through 25 if you're worried about things like that. So Mark chapter 11, verses 20 through 25. Let's review just a little bit this morning. Uh, so in case you weren't with us last week, you can know exactly what's going on here. Uh, when we first began working through the book of Mark, way back when, I pointed out that Mark likes to use a literary structure known as a literary sandwich. And we said what he does is he'll take one story and stuff it inside of the other in order to make a big point. And you can't understand one story without connecting it to another story. And that's what's going on here with the, the fig tree business. If you remember, I said a sandwich is defined by what's in the middle, which should probably be meat because cucumbers and things like that don't make a sandwich, right? It's got to be meat is what I said. So he said ham in the middle, it's a ham sandwich. Burger in the middle, it's a burger. You know, some corned beef and stuff in there, it's a Reuben. And then each sandwich kind of has its, its own bun, right? The Reuben, you get the rye bread. Uh, for burgers, you have the bun. And then uh, for PB&J, you might use wheat bread or white bread, whatever your preference is there. But we understand the whole of the sandwich by the basis of the bread and the meat or whatever's in the middle there, uh, and that's kind of the defining point is what's in the middle. So same, same structure is going on here with this fig tree episode, right? The fig tree story has been split apart, and we've had the temple part dropped down in the middle. And so you might want to think about the fig tree section as kind of like a pretzel bun. That's what I like best. And then the temple section is the real meat part, which we covered last week. And so we're coming up on the second, on the backside, the second bread part of what's going on here, of this literary sandwich. And so that's the structure that we're working with, and we got kind of halfway through last week. We touched the top bun in the middle, and now we're on the bottom bun. And that's what verses 20 through 25 are going to be. And so let's, let's really quickly touch on some of that stuff that we talked about last week. And you can think about this section of review, maybe like, before you watch a sitcom, there's a previously on whatever your show is, and that's kind of what we're going to do right now. Previously in our study of the fig tree in Mark, we read these verses. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he, that's Jesus, was hungry. And seeing in a distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again, and his disciples heard it. What's going on here is it's Passover week, and Jesus, like many, is not able to stay in Jerusalem because it's fuller than full. There are no Hiltons or Hamptons or any hotels like that, and so people had to stay with friends or family, and a lot of them would stay outside of the city or even in fields and tents. And Jesus has some friends he can crash with outside of the city in Bethany. It's not too far away, and so that's where he's staying. And they begin making their way into Jerusalem, as they will on the morning of each day this week. And I said, you can think of it as his commute, right? And so we thought, we talked about, you illustrated it this way, saying Jesus and the 12 disciples are on their weekly commute. They're in their 15-passenger van driving down the interstate into the big city of Jerusalem. And Jesus realizes that he forgot to grab his Pop-Tart and that he left his coffee on the counter. He realizes that he's very hungry. Remember we said he saw a Krispy Kreme sign in the distance. And the hot now sign was on. And so immediately they did that two-lane shuffle over, and they took that exit, and they walked into that Krispy Kreme ready to get like an eclair, maybe a little fig-filled donut. 
They walked in and there were no workers, no donuts, no coffee, only kale. And so they all hung their heads and walked out, and as they pulled out of the parking lot, Jesus said, curse this Krispy Kreme who lights up the hot now sign and has no donuts but only kale. Let no one ever eat here again. We learned that the story is an object lesson or a visual parable, a prediction. The fig tree is showing all the signs of having figs, of having life, or at least the small beginnings of fruit. But in reality, is nothing but leaves. The tree is presenting itself as one thing when in fact it is another. The tree is a hypocrite. It appears to be flourishing, but is fruitless. It's got the hot now sign on, but has nothing inside. We learned that this tree would mirror the temple, that Jesus would likewise curse. We also said that Jesus doesn't curse this fig tree because he's throwing a temper tantrum like a kid in the checkout lane of a a grocery store that wants some candy. Said he's not having a you're not you while you're hungry Snickers moment, but that he is infinitely wise. And he sees this tree and he knows that they're on their way to the temple. Remember back in verse 11, he went into the temple and looked around and he he, he just kind of shrugged and said, I'm going to go catch some Z's out in Bethany. They're on their way back in now and he knows what he's about to walk into, a den of thieves. He knows what he will do in the temple. And so he sees this tree in leaf, presenting itself as if it has fruit on it. And he walks up to it. There's no fruit. And he curses it to show us what will happen in the temple. You see, the temple had Jewish religious leaders of the day, the Sanhedrin, the chief priests, and the scribes. And they had been presenting themselves, like the fig tree, as one thing, when in fact they were another. They presented themselves as producing spiritual fruit of those that were truly devoted to God when in reality they were devoted to themselves and they were nothing but leaves. They appeared to be flourishing, but in fact they were fruitless. They presented themselves as being the light unto the world when in reality they belonged to it. And as a result, we saw Jesus cursed not only the fig tree, but the religious leaders in the temple. And he's saying, I'm replacing the religious leaders in the temple with myself. We pointed out last week that the main idea of the text was Jesus curses the fruitless and blesses the nations. And I exhorted you to produce the fruit of faith by abiding in Christ. Now, this week. So for everybody that just checked out, come come back on in. We're talking about this week now. The review is over. Uh, This week, we're going to get the lesson Jesus wants us to learn from the cursing of the fig tree in the temple. Which is this. It's in verse 22. It's really simple. Have faith in God. Have faith in God. That's kind of the main idea of the text. I've rephrased it this way to say, those that have faith in God are fruitful. Those that have faith in God are fruitful. And my goal this morning is to exhort you to do just that. Have faith in God and bear fruit. We're actually going to figure out if we have fruit in our lives this morning by taking a test. If you're not a great test taker, don't worry. It's only four questions, and it's largely subjective. One, Do I believe God's word? Two, who or what is the object of my faith? Three, how do I pray? And four, am I forgiving? Before we get into the text, let's let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you know every heart in this room. You know every hair on every head. You know some of us are, are very happy right now, very joyed. 
and some of us are going through unimaginable suffering. I pray that you would soften each heart and by your Holy Spirit apply the balm of your word where it needs to be applied and pierce hard hearts where they need to be pierced. Lord, do your will in us today. Open our ears and our eyes that we might hear you and that we might see you. Help us to submit to your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So Jesus and his crew are on their Monday morning commute. It's not Monday morning anymore. uh, But they're on their commute into Jerusalem. And we read verse 20. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. The fig tree that Jesus has cursed the previous morning on their way into the temple is now withered. It shows outwardly what the temple is inwardly dead. Verse 21, and Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you have cursed is withered. I I really love Peter here. He's been with Jesus through this whole thing. He's seen miracle after miracle, and he's still surprised at what's going on. He's like, the the fig tree you cursed withered. I I just, I love it. I guess I suppose that's the way real miracles work, though, is is you, you know, they never stop being astonishing. Although I think sometimes we're prone to become desensitized to the work of, of Christ in our lives. Anyhow, uh, I love Peter too here. Remember, it says Peter remembered. I love that phrase because it just reminds us that Mark is kind of Peter's secretary and he's writing down an eyewitness account and it just gives me such courage and excitement about just how neat and awesome the Bible is. It's the word of God. Peter here remembers Jesus' words, and he believes what they accomplished, right? You know what? He could have done something else, right? They could have been on their way back. He saw the fig tree all withered that Jesus cursed, and he could have done this. Well, you know, it's just really a coincidence. The tree was already dead, didn't have any fruit on it for a reason, and so it must have already been withering and just completed the process overnight. Or maybe he said, you know, it's possible miracles don't happen. That's outside of the realm of nature. It's possible that while we were all back in uh, in Bethany asleep, that that Jesus snuck out here last night, dug up the fig tree, and replaced it with a dead one. Could have explained it away. Could have come up with a number of excuses to dismiss what had happened. But instead, he believes that Jesus' words accomplish what he has spoken. I wonder this morning, do you believe that? Do you believe God's word has the power to accomplish what he promises that he says, or what he promises in it? Jesus says he will give you rest. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal himself. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Do you believe that? God says he'll make you a new creation. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ Jesus, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Do you believe that? Do you believe his word can accomplish that in you? God says he'll forgive your sins. I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will remember no more your sins. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. 
God says he'll adopt you as his child. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent his spirit into your heart, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. He promises to give those who trust in him fullness of joy and life everlasting. Do you believe his word can accomplish this? Really? Christian, I want to exhort you to remember what God has said. Remember what he's made true about you. Be excited about the miracle of the cross. Rejoice in Jesus. Non-Christian, God will bless you with himself. Just like he promises if you would only turn from your sin and believe the gospel. Vibrant faith, fruitful faith is marked by believing in God, by believing his word. Test question number one, do you believe in God's word? Verse 22, and Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Jesus here is getting ready to showcase for us the difference between the religious leaders and his disciples, the fruitless and the, I'm sorry, the fruitful and the fruitless. True disciples, at the end of the day, they're made new by Christ. Our hearts are changed, and as a result, they produce the fruit of faith. And so the fruit we bear in life, it flows from our hearts. If our hearts are dead and hardened by sin, so too will our fruit be either fake or rotten. If we have hearts that taste and see that the Lord is good, so too will our fruit be delicious you see, ultimately, your heart will either beat, it's going to beat to the drum of the object of your faith. Your life is ultimately going to, to dance to the rhythm of your heart's deepest affection. So if your faith is in your career, you'll build the meaning of your life on your job. If your faith is in your good looks, you're going to build the meaning of your life on beauty and fashion. If, if it's in money, you'll build the meaning of your life on money. Or if it's in family, you'll build the meaning of your life on your spouse and your children and your parents and all of them meeting your expectations. But friends, these are, we've said it before, crummy gods, they fail. Family will fail to live up to your expectations. You'll never get enough money. Your good looks will become a distant memory as you age. Not that any of you have got reached that point yet. That's not what I'm saying. There will come a day when you retire or leave your job. The only worthy object of faith is Jesus. He is the only one that never fails and always satisfies. He alone gives real meaning, real joy, and real life. Have faith in God. Test question number two. What is the object of your faith? What's the deepest desire of your heart? At some point, the Jewish religious leaders had exchanged faith in God for faith in their ability to keep the rules. They exchanged faith in God ultimately for a faith in themselves. I think it probably felt good to be dependent only on themselves. Probably felt good to be their own gods because I think this is the 
atypical or the usual human sin. We, we long to be our own gods. I think we love it so much so that we blind ourselves to the way that sin is dragging us down and drowning us. The object of the faith of the religious leaders left them fruitless, cursed, and unable to enjoy God's promises. Promises like the one we find in verse 23. That's what Jesus says. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the ocean or sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, Whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. This is a huge promise. Now, now Jesus isn't saying literally if you believe a mountain will, will throw itself into the ocean that it will. I mean, you can go out here and try all you want. It's, it's not going to happen. He's using a figure of speech here. It's a, kind of the same way we would say don't make a mountain out of a molehill or it's raining cats and dogs or I'll give you the moon. Right? His expression is, is an idiom that serves as a, a metaphor for doing that which is really, really hard or even seemingly impossible. But hear this, just, just because the promise isn't literal doesn't mean that it's less. Did you catch that? Just because the promise isn't literal doesn't mean that it's any less. Mountain-sized problems and impossible circumstances will present themselves in your lives. And through prayer, we will see God do the impossible. Don't, don't miss the promise. Notice, too, that the way we see the impossible become possible is by believing in Jesus as the object of our faith and tapping into His power through prayer. Your prayer is an expression of faith. Mountains cast themselves into the sea when we pray with great expectations in the name of Christ. But there are two dangers here that I want to warn us against. Two dangers that cause us to misunderstand and or misapply this text and therefore miss the promise. The first is this. I make the promise all about me. I bend it in on myself. I say, when I read this promise, I say to myself, whatever I want... It's mine if I just believe. God, I want a bigger house. God, I want a newer car. God, I want a better job. I believe enough for it, therefore I shall receive it. And, and some false teachers actually trick people into to thinking that that's what this text means. It's not. You've probably heard it. They, they, they'll say something along the lines of this. The key to health and wealth acquisition is thinking, visualizing, and speaking the right words. You just have to say to yourself, I am a child of God. I'm the kind of person that God blesses. He wants to bless me. I just have to believe. came uh, across a, an example just recently in the Washington Post. Uh, there was an article discussing an aptly named prosperity teacher named Creflo Dollar. This is how they describe Mr. Dollar. Dollar, the, the founder of the 30,000-member World Changers Church, International in Georgia preaches a prosperity gospel or that God will send earthly rewards, especially wealth, to those who are properly faithful. In Dollar's ministry, that often includes honor giving 
a name dollar sometimes uses for a practice that is similar to tithing or giving a portion of your income to the church. But in dollars, you give a portion of your income to the church in order to receive even more in return. Dollar says this, if you sow a seed on good, ra- good ground, you can expect a harvest. And so his idea is that your money is a faith seed and you sow it in. And so I give $1 and if I'm feeling the tenfold blessing that day. I'm going to get $10 in return somehow. The Lord's going to bring it back to me if I believe enough and I'm going to prosper. So basically the idea is if you believe enough and you give enough, God will give you whatever you want. It's the American dream. See, the problem with this is that Jesus becomes less than a God. He becomes subservient to whatever it is that, that you want. He basically is reduced to a bulletproof investment plan. Dollar had actually made his way into the news because of his intent to purchase a $65 million private jet. What would y'all do if I bought a $65 million private jet? <laughs> Think we can swing that? In response to the criticism of the purchase, because he ultimately did buy it, he said in a sermon that the jet was necessary to spread the gospel and that God wanted him to have the jet. I listened to a clip on YouTube. He said, if I want to believe God for a $65 million jet, then I have the right. Don't stop me from believing God for my jet. Friends, we're not called to just believe God for the wrong things. We're called to believe God for that which he wants for his glory. Let me be blunt. Dollar, he doesn't love Jesus. He loves money. He loves himself. And that's what prosperity theology teaches, ultimately. It teaches you to make yourself the object of your faith. It teaches not have faith in God. It's have faith, you ready, in your own faith, which is ultimately faith in my ability to conjure up faith. It's faith in yourself. This type of thought, this teaching, it's just idolatry dressed up as Christianity, and it teaches that camels can indeed squeeze through the eyes of needles. It's wrong. Brothers and sisters, this this verse is not teaching. It's not teaching us. It's not giving any justification for this name-it-and-claim-it heresy. It's not your way to a luxury car, good health, or even a $65 million jet. This verse is not promoting the power of positive thinking. Jesus is not giving you some kind of of little engine that could theology that that says, I think you can, I think you can, I think you can, I think you can, give me a car! And then you get a car. That's, That's not what's going on. It's not teaching that if you look into yourself and muster up enough belief in yourself, then you will get whatever you want for yourself. Not the teaching of the text. This verse has, it has shaping parameters. It's, it's like an engagement ring, right? The precious diamond requires the proper setting in order to hold it in place. Otherwise, it becomes loose and lost. If we remove this promise from the setting of all the scriptures, then its true meaning becomes lost to us. Because ultimately, this promise is only for those that have faith in God which is born out of an intimate relationship with him. It's only for those that abide in Jesus and have his desires as their own. That's why we're told in James 4.3, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly. 
to spend it on your passions. Or in 1 John 5.14. And this is the confidence we have toward him. That if we ask anything according, according to what? According to his will, he hears us. The placement of your faith is what impairs or empowers your prayers. The placement of your faith is what will impair or empower your prayer. So if my faith is in my own faith, and I'm praying for things that are according to my own passion, rather than according to the will of God, I'm either, like, my prayer is just not going to get answered in the way I thought. I might actually receive some of those things, but it would be God's judgment to me versus his mercy to me. When you have Jesus as the object of your faith, he becomes your greatest passion. And as a consequence, your prayers are shaped by his person. And so you start praying according to his plans and his purposes. Friends, God's power can never be used for anything other than his purposes. If your prayers are not in accord with God's purpose, then they're not going to be answered the way you think. Good news here, though, is that uh, if we knew everything that God knows, we would pray for exactly what he gives us. If we knew everything he knows, we would pray for exactly what he gives us. I think those that abide in Christ love this truth and pray with complete confidence in God's power and in complete submission to God's will. I think those that have faith in God pray like the Apostle Paul. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. I think those that pray in faith, pray like Jesus. Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Friends, Jesus understands our cries. He understands our, our want for healing. He understands your cry for a better marriage. He understands mourning over the loss of a loved one. He understands what it's like to be in pain. understands what it is to struggle with money. He understands your brokenness. He, he understands. He holds you in his heart. He'll never forsake you. And he will never withhold any good thing from you. He always gives you exactly what you need. And he knows better than you exactly what that is. Jesus always gives you exactly what you need, and he knows better than you exactly what that is. So in sum, meaningful faith, vibrant faith, fruitful faith, trust and desires God's will above its own. It confidently believes in God's power to do all things and joyfully submits to his purposes in everything. The second way we miss this promise is by explaining it away so that it becomes meaningless. Usually we're prone to one of these or the other. Usually we're prone to make it all about me or explaining it away. This is the one I'm more prone to. Explaining it away that it becomes meaningless. Don't, don't do that. 
Don't be the guy that says, the fig tree, Jesus cursed it and it's withered now, but he probably came here overnight and replaced it with, with one that was already dead. It didn't really happen. Pray with confidence and with expectation that miracles are going to happen. I think prayer, it's, it's, it's a miracle growth for the Christian life. And it's an expression of faith that helps slay the hypocrisy that we've seen in the temple. I mean, did you know that God has determined to accomplish really amazing things, specific things, through your prayers? Did you know that? Pray. Pray believing God's word in the name of God's Son for the miraculous with great expectation. Now you might ask, how do I pray with great expectation? How do I pray, this text says, without doubting in my heart? I think this relates directly to what we discussed back in Mark chapter 9. Uh, we learned that the disciples there, they were unable to cast out this demon, and, and there was a, a young boy's father who cries out to Jesus. He says, I believe, help my unbelief. I think the father showed us a little bit of ourselves, right? Faith is never 100% to the wall. Faith is never perfect. But there's a, a point at which no faith, there's a threshold at which no faith becomes little faith. And little faith is enough to activate the power of God. Little faith is enough to activate the power of God. Remember in Mark's account, the disciples asked Jesus, hey, why can't we cast out this demon? And he tells them that this particular brand of demon, it only comes out how? Through prayer. And in Matthew's account, it's the same, same story. They, the disciples ask Jesus, why can't we cast out this demon? And Jesus responds to them in chapter 17, verse 20, because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. So Jesus tells his disciples that they couldn't cast out the demon because of their little faith. Then he proceeds to give them a solution for their problem, and the solution is not more faith. The solution is little faith, like grain of mustard seed. Mustard seed is really small. So, so the solution for your little faith is, is little faith. So how can little faith be the problem and the solution? I think it's because the object of faith is what empowers it. The disciples have faith, in this instance, in themselves rather than God. It's not the amount of faith that matters, but its object. So, so putting your faith in yourself or in your own abilities is... It's a little bit like the kid who builds a cardboard rocket ship, right, and gets in that bad boy and believes, I'm going to the moon. He can believe with 100% belief that he's going to the moon in his cardboard rocket ship, but it lacks the power to get him there. The object of his faith is impotent. Whereas putting your faith in Jesus is a little bit like the, the astronaut who's a conspiracy theorist. So uh, the astronaut thinks that, hey, no, man's never been to the moon. Moon landing was filmed in a Hollywood basement. I'm going to prove this whole thing wrong. I'm getting on this NASA rocket. Has enough faith to get on the rocket. Very little faith. But eventually he's going to end up on the moon. Because the rocket has the ability, the object of his faith has the ability to get him where it's supposed to take him. So it doesn't matter if his faith is small. What matters is the power of the object of his faith. So, come back here to the stories a little bit, what, what Matthew calls mustard seed faith is explained by Mark as prayer. Remember we talked about this. In other words, mustard seed faith or little faith 
that activates the power of God is faith that prays. Let me say it differently. Faith in Jesus Christ expresses itself through prayer. So that I believe, help my unbelief, is enough to activate the power of God. All of heaven's resources are at the disposal of the believer who prays, even if she prays imperfectly. Because faith isn't the power. Faith is the empty hand that receives the power from God. Right? Faith isn't the power. It's the empty hand that receives the power from God. So to come back to our question, how do we pray with great expectation and without doubting in our hearts? By beginning. By doing it. If Jesus is the object of your faith, even imperfect faith, little faith, the act of prayer to him is an expression of your confidence in his power and your submission to his will. Fruitful faith, mustard seed faith, or in this context, doubt-free faith, is faith that prays with confidence in and submission to God's providence. Which brings us to test question number three. How do you pray? Are you praying with confidence and in submission to God's providence, or are you praying according to your own agenda? Verse 25. Whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. Really quickly, some of you in your Bibles probably have a footnote that has verse 26, or you have little brackets there, that 26 is in brackets, and that's because it's not part of the earliest or best manuscripts in Mark, right? So it's not, not part of the Gospel of Mark. And the reason it got there probably is while people copied this and Matthew became available, that's exactly what Matthew says in chapter 6, verse 15 when Jesus is, is having a similar teaching going on. Anyhow, all that said, what, when we've seen verses like this, I like to remind you that it should greatly encourage us because it means that the editors and translators of our Bibles have gone to great lengths to ensure that what we have before us is the authentic and reliable Word of God. So when you see things like that, don't freak out. right? It's actually an encouragement. We've got it right. We have the Word of God in front of us. So be encouraged. Now that that's out of the way, let's deal with verse 25. Jesus says, The first prerequisite for effective prayer is forgiveness. If you plan on standing to pray, standing is just the, the posture of the time. That's most people stood to pray. Now it might be similar to like bowing your head. So if you want to think about it that way, when you bow your head to pray, you must forgive. Faith looks like forgiveness. Christians forgive because they've been forgiven much. Christians forgive because Jesus gave himself over to the bloody cross, died in our place so that we might learn forgiveness. He, he ransomed us. He bought us out of our chosen slavery to sin and freed us to live to righteousness. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Peter tells us, by his wounds you are healed. Forgiveness is evidenced in a willingness to forgive. Those that have experienced the joy of knowing Jesus are big forgivers. Forgiveness, it's not easy. But if we find ourselves unable to forgive others, it's evidence that our faith is faulty. 
If you can't forgive someone else, it's evidence that there is a faulty nature to your faith. An inability to forgive reveals a true hardness of heart akin to that of the Jewish religious leaders. A Christian that does not forgive is a fruitless fig tree. Nothing but leaves. All show and no substance. A Christian that doesn't forgive is a hypocrite and under the curse of Christ. Are you forgiving? On Wednesday, June 17th, 2015, at approximately 9 p.m., after nearly an hour in prayer, shots rang out as visitor Dylan Roof assassinated eight members and the pastor of Emanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina. I forgive you. Nadine Collier, the daughter of 70-year-old Ethel Lance, said to the killer at his hearing just two days later, her voice breaking with emotion, you took something very precious from me. I'll never talk to her again. I'll never, ever hold her again. But I forgive you. Like Nadine, all those that were harmed by this tragedy spoke words of hope to the stone-faced assassin forgiving him and urging him to repent and be forgiven by God. Dr. Moeller noted, the words of forgiveness uttered in that courtroom on Friday shocked the nation, leading to the headlines across the country in which media tried to come to terms with exactly how those who were so grieved by the intentional killing of their loved ones could speak of forgiveness to the one who had been arrested for that crime. This kind of forgiveness is rooted essentially in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. In, fa- in the fact that in Christ, we who come to faith in him are forgiven our sins as we remember Christ died as our substitutionary sacrifice on the cross. He was the sinless one who died in the place of sinners. And forgiveness of sins and life everlasting comes to those who come to Christ by faith. Those that know Christ become like him by forgiving those that have sinned against them. Can you forgive like this? Could you forgive the murderer of your spouse, grandparent, friend, son, or daughter? Could you forgive an ISIS member God the Father forgiving you is no less scandalous. You killed his son and he gave you life. Those that have been united to Jesus by faith and experienced the joy of his forgiveness and life together with God, well, they forgive. Test question number four. Are you forgiving. Do you forgive like God? In some, is your faith fruitless or fruitful? Do you believe God's word, trust God's son, pray according to God's will, and forgive according to God's character? You can. You need only raise the empty hands of faith and prayer and ask Jesus to help you in your unbelief and to make you his son or daughter. 
What you do flows from who you are. If you are rooted in Christ, your fruit will bear out that reality. If you're not rooted in Christ, it's not too late for him to give you a heart transplant. Makes the impossible possible. Jesus' answer to the sinner's prayer is the sinner's rescue. He will rescue you. You need only call out to him. The miracle of the sinner's salvation, our salvation, the miracle of your salvation, well, that's more amazing than any mountain throwing itself in the ocean. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are so good, so merciful and kind, and we are undeserving. We are wicked. And apart from you, we are dead and can do no thing. Lord, thank you for breathing life into our lungs and giving to us that which only Jesus deserves, life everlasting, the joy of being in your presence. Help us to delight in this good news, in your great character. Help us to bathe in your grace, sit beneath the waterfall of your holiness. God, let us be joyed in your presence. You are all satisfying. And to you we exclaim, hallelujah, hosanna, worthy is the lamb. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.